The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. How's that for short, am I right? Well, hey, it's good to be with you. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I get the privilege of, of being pastor here at Citizens. Uh, if you do have a Bible, go ahead and get to, to Psalm 139. That's where we're going to be hanging out, just looking at those two verses for, for quite a bit of time together this evening. Um, Man, if you didn't get a chance to be here yesterday, uh, we had our, our semi-annual members meeting uh, where we kind of just get together uh, all of those who of us who call Citizens Church uh, home or consider themselves a part of this family, and it was just deeply encouraging for my heart. Uh, just a, a wonderful night to get to eat together, to get to celebrate stories of what God is doing uh, and has been doing, and, and to get to pray and to seek his face for, for more uh, of him and more of his movement uh, in our church and in our city, all of that. And so I was just blessed by that. Uh, if you are not a member here, if you're like, I'm not locked in quite yet, a uh, really easy next step for you to do that is next Sunday. We have our membership class. It's something we do uh, a couple times a year. Uh, it doesn't commit you to being a member. It's just an easy way for you to spend a couple of hours learning more about who we are as a church and what we believe and how we live out those beliefs. Uh, so we'd love to have you. I'll talk about that more at the end of the gathering. We pray for us, and then uh, let's see what it is that the Bible has for us today. Let's pray. God, thank you. So, so much that we get to gather together. Man, what a, what a privilege. But by your grace, but by your spirit, but through the power of the gospel, Lord, all of us are doing other things on Sunday at five. So many other things that would be more comfortable, so many other things that would be easier, so many other things that would shout for our attention and our joy and our love and our worship. And yet, because of your spirit, we're here. We get to talk about you and we get to sing that you're glorious and you're holy and that nothing else compares to you and that we want you to be more magnified in our lives and that we're not going to be formed by our feelings. We're going to be formed by you and by the power of your spirit, Lord, and it's all simply a grace gift from you. It's beautiful. I don't want to miss that. Lord, we love you. Thanks for your word. Thanks that it is true, that it is without error, that it is authority in our lives, that you have revealed yourself, that you have not stayed hidden, and yet you want to be known and you want to know us. And I pray that we would hear that invitation tonight. We love you. Pray all these things in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Well, last week, we started out on this kind of four-week journey within a journey, talking about the four essential movements of emotional health, the four things we needed to do to step forward into emotional maturity. And we said that the first and most essential step towards emotional maturity is to go up in order to go forward. That we have to bring all of our feelings, all of our emotions, all of our heart and emotional life to God. That we have to pour our heart out before him. That we have to gush, to use the language of the scriptures. That we have to give him everything that we are feeling and then wait on him and his faithfulness. Because power and steadfast love belong to our God. And this week I want to lead us into the second essential movement. And that is to go in 
to go forward to go in, to go forward. There's a story as that's a part of this book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. And if you've never read it, it's one part of the larger Chronicles of Narnia series. And part of what happens in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader that I think gives a weighty picture to what we're talking about today with this idea of going in to go forward is about the boy Eustace. And Eustace is the cousin of the sibling group that finds the wardrobe and finds the land of Narnia, if you've at least seen that movie or read that book. And what happens in the voyage of the Dawn Treader is that Eustace, because of the deep love in his heart to be selfish and to be prideful and to be on his own, slowly turns into a dragon. He is formed and shaped into the loves of his heart. And eventually in the story, he doesn't want to be a dragon anymore. He wants to go back to being a little boy, and he, he learns that the way to do that is that he has to shed the dragon skin like a snake would shed their skin. And so with effort and might, painfully, he sheds off the first outer layer of the dragon skin. He's exhausted, and he's tired, and he says, how many more times do I have to do this? And he peels off another layer, and he peels off a third layer, and he almost collapses because he's so tired from peeling off the skin. And Aslan, who's a lion, a representation of Jesus Christ in the story, comes to him, and he says, Eustace, you have to let me help you. If you're going to shed the rest of these layers of skin, you have to let me step in and help. And this is how Eustace describes the scene in the book. This is what he says. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. And Aslan removes the dragon skins and Eustace is healed. He's redeemed. He's turned back into a boy, the most painful and yet most wonderful thing. Here's why this matters for us today. I think all of us, at some level, are like Eustace in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Now, we're not dragons, although some of us would think that'd be fun. We're like Eustace because who we really are is hidden underneath layer after layer of falsehood and deception. Put there because of what we love, what we worship, or to use the language of the scriptures, what we idolize. It's put there because of what we've done, or it's put there because of what people have done to us. And we have learned in varying degrees of intentionality and awareness over time through uh, some combination of self-protection and sin to live out of what theologians call a false self. The true us meant to live in vulnerability and honesty and confession with God and others at some point has gone into hiding and been replaced by a premeditated, put-on-display version of who we think we are. In the words of Thomas Merton, who's this kind of monk and writer on spirituality in the early 1900s, quote, every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. This is the man I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God does not know anything about him. The false self is the the dragon skin. It's the me I want God and others and myself to believe is real. The false self is the me that shoves down or chooses to ignore anything within my heart that looks ugly and wicked so I can present myself as acceptable to God. 
The false self is the voice in our head that rises up with a thousand different justifications of why it's okay I yelled at my spouse, or why it's okay I gossiped about that person, why it's okay I lied to my boss just so I don't feel guilty or shameful. The false self is the you that ignores all of the bad things that happened to you in the past. The you that says, I don't want to think about it. It's not that big of a deal because to talk about it or to think about it or to bring it up brings pain and hurt. The false self is that character that just sort of comes out of you at parties where you're like, I don't know why I made that joke. I would never make that joke in real life. But something within you that just so desperately wants to be liked and included just sort of leaks. What happens when we choose to live out of a false self is we just want God to deal with the outer layers. We want him to heal a version of us that we put into the world that isn't even actually real. And yet we want him to believe it is, or others to believe it is, or we have started to believe it is ourselves. And when we do that, we cut ourselves off from healing and redemption and repentance and, as I want to argue today, emotional health. So this is the second movement we must take in order to move forward into emotional health. We must go in to go forward. And there's an invitation for us here in the last two verses of Psalm 139 to, to bring God in with his claws like Aslan to begin to do the painful work of peeling back the layers of the false self. David's going to make four requests of God. I actually want to take them backwards. We're going to start... Uh, kind of at the end and work backwards. And I want to kind of show us a path for bringing God in and kind of going in with him so that we can see who we truly are and be healed and redeemed and repent. So Psalm 139, 23 and 24, I'm just going to chart the path, teach a little bit, and then we'll get really uh, applicable at the end. Psalm 139, 23 and 24, David writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. There's layers here that we want to peel back. And the first layer David asked the Lord to see and to peel back is in verse 24. He says, See if there be any grievous way in me. That's layer number one. See my ways. Lord, see if there be any grievous way in me. The first invitation from David to God is to look at his life. God, see if there be any grievous or sinful or idolatrous way of living or action in me. The first invitation is very simple. God, see my life. Like, see what it is that I do. See what it is that I actually live out. See all of the ways that I want to justify my actions or excuse my actions. All the ways that I'm living that are not glorifying or pleasing to you. And the first layer that he invites us to peel back is this false self of lying to God, ourselves, and others about the day-in and day-out realities of our lives, including our emotions. The first invitation is just to be honest. Hey, this is where I'm actually at. This is what's actually going on with me. This is the lived reality of my life and of my feelings. I heard a ton of feedback uh, from week one. I was really curious, so I've been asking a lot of folks. Uh, and if, you asked, if I asked you, you're welcome for including you in this. Um, a ton of folks, I wanted to know, hey, we talked about suppression and obedience to our emotions. Which one, which one are you? Which one do you think you are based on sermon number one? Do you suppress or do you obey? And a lot of us, the overwhelming majority, were like definitely a suppressor. And I'm not going to say that we're lying. I would never say that. But let me just kind of challenge you with something. There is a difference between suppressing, which means I'm not going to let myself feel what I properly should feel, and obeying but lying, which means I'm going to feel it, and I'm going to feel all of it. I'm just not going to let God or others or even myself really know that I'm feeling it. See the difference there? There's a difference between suppressing and obeying but lying. And obeying but lying is living out of the false self, right? Right? So when you're sad, 
and you're sitting with a group of friends or with your community group, and you have that sadness on your face, and somebody says, hey, are you okay? And you say, yeah, 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 fine. That's the false self. When you're angry and you're mad about the circumstances of your life and you're like, I need to go pray. And you go into prayer and you're like, God, what's up? This is awesome. How you doing? Praise you. That's the false self. When you're joyful and you feel like, man, I need to act like my life is not actually good right now or it's actually falling apart in order so other people will give me attention. That is the false self. It's the first invitation David has for us. See if there be any grievous way in me. It's just God, see my actual life. See what's broken about how I'm living. See what's broken about how I'm feeling. See what's broken about the day in and day out reality. See how I'm hiding. See how I'm not honest about reality. It's the first step, but there's another layer. Layer number two is in verse 23. David says, try me and know my thoughts. Layer number two is to know my thoughts. God, see my ways. Let's take it a step even further. Know my thoughts. Now, thoughts here in verse 23 uh, are not like, see what my opinions are on food or restaurants or like just what I'm thinking about as I drive. That's not really what's going on. The Hebrew word here is the word seraphim, and it more literally translates as anxieties or worries. So some of your English translations might say anxious thoughts or cares. I actually think that's much more helpful to the original text. So the first invitation, right? God, know what I'm actually doing and feeling know what's actually going on within me, willing to be honest about the surface. And then the second invitation is, Lord, know what I worry about. Know what's causing this feeling of reaction. Know what's actually underneath the surface that I'm anxious over, that I'm fixated on, that I'm turning over in my head over and over when I can't sleep at night. Test me and see, why am I actually angry? Like, why do I actually feel alone? So we want to be honest about the what, This is what I'm feeling, honest before God, myself, others. And then we take the next step of the why. Why am I feeling this way? All right, I'm angry, but but why? Lord, why? What is going on? Well, I'm angry because I'm worried about the future, and that person is getting in the way of it. Okay, I want to be honest. I'm feeling shameful. I'm feeling shame. Okay, but why? Well, I went against God's holy commands, and I sinned against him, and I'm worried God doesn't actually love me after what I just did. Like, what's the underlying anxiety and worry causing the outward response. And there's a whole host of things that can drive our worry, right? Jobs, marriages, kids, health, I don't know, war, global pandemics, the economy, gas prices, like just go down the list. All of these items can be level two, layer two worries. They lead to emotionally unhealthy responses. But there's one more step even below that, the, the kind of why behind the why, if you will. One more layer, layer number three, verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Layer three is that God would know David's heart. This is the layer underneath all of our actions, underneath all of our worries. It's it's the heart. Now, the heart in the scriptures is more than just our emotions or our feelings. So the heart, if you kind of look, particularly throughout the language of the New Testament, but Old Testament some too, is that the heart is usually what's used to describe the core of our being. Or to put it another way, it's the driving force behind all we do and think. It's our affections, it's our will. The heart is what kind of drives us or orients us into a particular direction. I think Proverbs 4.23 is really clear here. It says this, it says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. So David here is saying, all right, God, know my ways, know my thoughts, the anxiety is driving that, but I need you to go an even step further. I need you to know my heart. I need you to see the actual core of who I am. See what it is that drives me. 
See what it is that motivates me. See what it is that gets me up in the morning. See what it is that I'll fight for and bleed for and cry for. I'm inviting you to see on that level, see and know what it is that I love. Because here's what happens. I got a, a beautiful chart that I made myself. Here's what happens. What we love, so what, what's the driving, animating force of our heart, dictates what we worry about. Our thoughts, our anxieties, our cares, which then drives our feelings. What we actually do, our actual lived reality in the world. And so David says, God, I need you to see me and know me at all of these layers. <laughs> I need you to know how I feel, sure, but not just that. I need you to know what I worry about, the thoughts, and I need you to know the driving soul-level desire and love that I have that's driving all of that underneath the surface. I'm reminded of James chapter 4, if you remember going through James this spring, where James writes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, what the core driving motivation is within your heart is going to dictate the emotional life that you have. Or to put it in the words of James K. Smith, I love this quote. He wrote a book uh, called You Are What You Love. You got to read it. It's so good. He says this. He says, our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants, our longings, our desires, our heart is at the core of our identity. It drives everything about how we live, what we do. And so in order to move forward into emotional health and maturity, we have to learn to be honest about our hearts with God, with others, and with ourselves. We have to say, God, what is it that I truly love? And not just what do I love, what do I love more than you? Which is the core of all idolatry, right? Idolatry is not simply putting some wooden figure in your house and worshiping it, right? Idolatry is anything or anyone you put in the place of God in your life. Anything you love or orient your life around that is not God. Even good, God-glorifying things that you put on the throne is idolatry. And so he says, God, see my heart. What runs my life that is not you? David, David says, God, I need you to know me, see my grievous ways, see my anxious thoughts, see my driving and motivating loves. All right, let's pause here for a minute. So that's just kind of the, the invitations from David. And honestly, these, I hope you see these are beautiful, that you would ask God to know him and to see him and to know his thoughts and know his heart. We know it's God's word, and so we know it's true and it's life-giving. And I think at, at some point in our core, we all want this, right? Like at some point, deep down, we all want to be known and loved deeply by God and by others. Like we don't want to put on a facade. We don't want to put on a face. I don't want to have to step into a room every time I'm there to go, do people like me? Am I doing okay? Like am I putting on the right whatever I need to put on in this environment? We all would love to be known and loved. So let me ask you a question. Why do we hide? Why do we put on a false self? If we would say, yeah, this is a beautiful invitation. I want to be known and deeply loved by God. Then why do we live out of the false self? And I think there's certainly a number of reasons we could give, right? A number of reasons why we ignore the surface or what's underneath the surface. We could say that, well, I, I want to ignore what's going on underneath because it's unimportant. It's time consuming. Like there's important things to do, right? I'd rather just go read some more theology. I'd rather just go live on mission. I'd rather go do all these other important things for the kingdom. This is unimportant. It's time consuming. For others of us, we don't want to do it because it's difficult and painful, right? One pastor says it's the hard work of heart work. It's hard. I'm going to see what's actually going on, things that I love that are not God. Oftentimes, we don't do it because it feels hopeless. I mean, what's the point? I know what I love more than God. It's not going to change. 
I want it to. I really do want to love God more than this. I just know myself. It's been 20 years. It's not going to change. What's the point? Maybe for some of us, it feels selfish. I just can't give myself that much time. I got to focus on other people, serving other people, loving other people. Let's talk about your heart. Can I help your heart? What's going on with your heart? Yet when we don't take the step, we miss it. Those are all valid reasons, but I think the number one reason that we live out of a false self is actually what Jesus says about our hearts in Mark chapter 7. So Jesus has this scene in Mark 7 where he's interacting with the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders of the day, and he says, hey, you guys honor me with your lips, but your hearts, your driving force in your lives, it's far from me. You're not actually living a life that is pleasing to me because you don't worship me with your whole self. And this is what he says about the heart to the Pharisees, and it's true about all of us apart from Christ. Mark 7 Verse 20, and Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. I think the number one reason why we hide, why we live out of a false self, is because when we look underneath the surface, we often don't like what we find. When we look past the false self, past the facade, when we begin, like Eustace, to peel back the layers with God to see what's actually going on within us, often our theology of sin is going to say it's going to get ugly before it gets more beautiful. Because what we see in the heart is what Jesus says we're going to see. Evil thoughts sexual immorality, theft, wickedness, deceit, envy, pride, foolishness. If we're willing to journey deeper, if we're willing to peel back the layers and be honest about who we really are, it's not going to be beautiful. Because at our core, apart from Christ, what are we but this list? So our temptation is to, okay, that's ugly, I want to hide. I don't want to see it. I don't want to be honest about it. I want to ignore it. I want to pretend it doesn't exist or it's not that big of a deal or it's everyone and everything else's fault but my own. This is me. This is a a thing I know firsthand. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was getting ready to leave for the gathering. Uh, It was a week where I wasn't set to to preach. It was on the paternity break. And I was going to go a little bit early to Giddy Goat to hang out with a friend and read and catch up, somebody I hadn't seen in a little while. And so I'm packing my bag in the kitchen, and Lindsay stops me and says, hey, before you walk out the door, I would love to just plan our week. That's something we do. I don't know how you function, but for us, we plan week and weeks, plural, okay? So we sit down. We go, this is our life with two kids. We're going to map everything out. So if you want to get on my calendar for August, you go ahead, you call me, you can get on my calendar. Just a joke. Thank you. Uh, and so she says, hey, I'd love before you leave, like real quick, let's just, let's just do this real quick. And now that's a totally reasonable request, right? Takes five minutes. Let's pull out our phones, look at the Google calendar, see what we have going on. You're trying to make plans with some other people. Let's make sure we're synced up for the week. That would have been the very reasonable, normal adult response that I should have made as a husband who loves my wife. Instead, I didn't. What happened instead was all of these emotions started rising up within me. Like, out of nowhere, right? I'm anxious all of a sudden. I'm stressed all of a sudden. I just get angry. And so instead of a normal response like, hey, babe, that sounds great. Let's play in the week real fast. No big deal. Instead, I just lash out incredibly fast. What? Now I'm heading out the door. I got to go to church. You know it's Sunday. Like, why would you want to do this now? You're stressing me out. Stop. Instantly, I knew I was off. I mean, instantly, I was like, I'm an idiot and a jerk. And here's what I knew was going on in my heart in that moment. I had one of two options. 
I knew I was wrong. I knew I'd responded in a way that was not honoring to her, glorifying to God. I knew that my emotional life and response was off, and I had two options. Option one, the false self. Hey, um, not a big of a deal, right? I'm just going to go. We'll talk about it later. Or, hey, that, my bad. Like, I know I shouldn't have done that. I'm just kind of stressed right now. It's just, you know, a hard day, whatever. Like, I'm sorry. Or, hey, how, don't you know any better? It's Sunday. Like, it's the only day of the week I work. Like, don't you know my life? Like, I'm a pastor. I got to go. I'm out the door. I haven't seen this guy in a while. Like, just let me go, right? Option one, the false self. Option two, peel back the layers with God. Okay, why, why did I do that? Well, I did that because I'm anxious. Okay, why am I anxious? Why am I worried? Well, I'm worried because Michael Bailey from Midtown Lexington is coming up to preach, and he's a guy I respect and admire a lot, and I, I want him to like our church. I want him to say good things. I want him to think that we're doing a good job, and some of our volunteers called out like last minute, including one of our directors, and so I'm just nervous things are not going to go well, and oh yeah, underneath that is my heart, which says that, oh yeah, from a very early age, I've learned that if I don't succeed, then I don't matter, and so when that gets meshed in with my sin, then all I know how to do is to use this church wrongfully as some weird, twisted self-actualization project, and on top of that, I'm selfish and I like my comfort and you're getting in the way of my comfort right now, babe. Let me ask you a question. In that moment, which option's easier? But let me ask you a follow-up question. Which one actually leads to true repentance and healing? And this is what we do, right? This is what all of us do. We stare down the reality of our hearts. I mean, look at Mark chapter 7. Look at what Jesus himself says about our hearts. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. I don't know of a more true list than about me. How true is that list about Tim Olson? Out of my heart come wickedness, coveting, you best believe I want all the Teslas in my neighborhood. Deceit, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, so incredibly true about my heart. And so my bent and my leaning is to go, no, uh-uh, let's not look at it. It's your fault. You interrupted, I was out the door, this is an important thing, why can't you just, I just don't want to think about it at all, and yet there's no healing there because there's no repentance there, and so the Lord can't actually redeem it because I give him a version of me that's just not real. Hey God, here's who I am. No, it's not. Hey God, I was just kind of stressed about the morning. No, you weren't. Hey God, my wife's interrupting me. Sure, kind of, that doesn't matter. <laughs> She's your wife. Hey God, it's going to be stressful to plan. No, it's not. Your heart is wicked. Face it. Stare it down. Peel back the layers. Painful. Absolutely. It leads to so much actual repentance and redemption. So let me ask you a question. How might this look for you? Let me just give you a few practical examples. I just want to kind of real quick hit two emotions and what this might look like. This week, uh, if you're in a community group, if you're not a community group, get in a group. What you're going to be doing this week is kind of walking through this together. But let's just think about real quick how this might look with two different emotions. Let's think about anger. The emotion of anger, right? Step one, I'm angry. I'm not going to live out of a false self. A false self would either say I'm not angry or I'm angry, but it's everybody else's fault but mine. We're not going to do that. We're going to own our anger, okay? So I'm going to ask God to begin to peel back the layers. All right, Lord, see my grievous ways. Help me be honest with you and myself and others that I'm actually angry. <laughs> Let me not hide from this. Let me not lie. Let me not obey it, but then lie. Let me not even stuff it. Let me just be honest. I'm angry. 
All right, layer two, Lord, know my anxious thoughts. Okay, I'm angry because I'm worried. All right, why are you worried? Okay, I'm worried because my life feels out of control. I'm worried about paying the bills. I'm worried because my boss just had that bad performance review with me. I'm worried because of what's going on in the world right now and gas is like 80 million bucks to fill up for two gallons. I'm just worried. I'm worried about how my future and how all of this is gonna affect me. All right, that's my anxious thoughts. Lord, know my heart. God, I love control. I love control more than I love you sometimes. And I love to be the king of my, my life. I love to be the master of my ship. I like to control everything. I love being in charge. I want to be in charge more than I want to trust you. I idolize control, and I don't have it. And so I'm worried, and I'm angry. Let me give you another one. Guilt. Feeling of guilt. All right, step one. I'm not going to live out of a false self, right? A false self would either say, I don't feel guilty, or, well, it's not that big of a deal anyway, and so that's how I'm going to get out of my guilt. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to be honest, and I'm going to ask God to peel back the layers. All right, Lord, see the grievous ways, right? Help me be honest. Help me be honest to myself, to others, to you, that I'm struggling with these feelings of guilt. All right, why, right? Lord, know my anxious thoughts. Well, I'm feeling guilty because I did something that was wrong. I gossiped about that person that I shouldn't have. I told that kind of half-truth to that one friend to get them to like me more and welcome me, and now I feel bad. I'm worried that person is going to find out and be hurt. I'm worried about what they're going to think about me. All right, know my heart. God, I love approval. And I'm ultimately pretty self-serving. And so, you know, I kind of don't want that person to not be hurt, but more than anything, I kind of just don't want them to think that I'm like a bad person. And so I feel guilty. I did this thing that was wrong, but I kind of just want to self-protect. This is what's going on in my heart. That's the layers. That's what we're inviting God into. That's the, the hard work of heart work, where we can actually repent and let God actually heal. But here's the deal, it must not stop there, all right? This is not some weird Christianized self-awareness project. We talked about that last week, the danger of emotional health is that it can become all about, okay, I just got to know my emotions more. But this is not just one big self-interpretation project. Because what happens if we just care a lot about self-awareness and not at all about being redeemed by Jesus is that we can then begin to use the heart that we see as an excuse for the actions that we like. Are you tracking? So we can say, okay, I see that my heart loves control, and then it just becomes like a joke. I'm like, yeah, I like control. Ah. Or we're like, yo, you know me, just an approval person. We miss the redemption and the healing that comes through the repentance of what's going on in our hearts. And that's why I love the last line of this psalm from David. Right? He says, God, search my heart, know my thoughts, see my ways, but he doesn't stop there. What does he say at the end of 24? And lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way everlasting. The way is this idea, this terminology used throughout the scriptures for the, the path of Jesus. He says, lead me in the better way. Lead me in the better life. Lead me into more life with you, more life abundant, more mature life. Peel back the layers, not so I can see the brokenness and then justify it, but I can see the brokenness and then turn from my sin and trust in you and let you heal me and change me and redeem me. That's where how we actually grow into emotional maturity. We look at our hearts. We stare it down by the power of the gospel. We stare it down through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we say, all right, Lord, this is my heart. This is what I love more than you, leading to these worries, leading to these emotions. Change my heart. This is what I love more than you. Take it. This is what I love more than you. Change my heart. Change my love. It's not just self-awareness. It's not just let me figure some stuff out. It's no, let me figure some stuff out with the Spirit so that I can repent and he can change me. Here's the gospel for us in this. Here's how I kind of want to close this. And by close, I mean like, I don't know, I got a few more minutes. Psalm 139, verse 1. 
Look at the beginning of the chapter. I love this. So David ends Psalm 139. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. But look at what he says in 1 through 6. He says, oh Lord, you have what? Searched me and known me. This is great. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, even before I say something, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. That's terrifying. Beautiful. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful to me. It is high. I cannot attain it. All right, do you see this? David asked the Lord in verses 23 and 24 to do the very thing he knows God has already done in one through six. You see that connection? 23 and 24. Hey God, search me. Know my heart. Know my thoughts. Know my ways. Oh yeah, by the way, I just talked about how you do that. God, you know everything. You already know when I rise. You already know when I go to bed. You already know before I say anything what's on my heart. You already know the anxious thoughts before I even know them. Here's the crazy thing about this whole thing. God, you know my heart better than I will ever know my heart. You know how ugly it is. You know how wicked it is. You know how deceitful it is. You know all of the things and ways that I love other stuff more than you. You know all of it, and you know more than I am ever going to know about it. Yet here's the beautiful reality, verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? God, where am I going to go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Meaning if I go high, if I go low. If I take the wings of the morning, if I go far east and dwell on the other most parts of the sea, which is the far west, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. Now, growing up in church, I was always taught that these verses were supposed to be scary. Like I was always taught like God knows everything. He knows your thoughts. He knows what you're going to do. He knows before you even say it, you better watch out. He's watching. Boom, strike down. Be careful. It's not the language of the text. The language of the text is beautiful. David says, God, search me, know me. You already done that. You already know me. You know my thoughts. You know my anxieties. You know my worries. You know my life. And I cannot get away from you. How beautiful of a picture of the gospel is that? That God would see us way more wicked than we can ever admit or know. Way more ugly. All of our thoughts, all of the thoughts that you are ashamed that you even think, that you would be crazy embarrassed for anyone to ever know that you think. God knows all of them before you think them. Yet in his kindness, he says, you're not going anywhere in Christ that I am not. And in Christ, you are not going to flee from my presence. And in Christ, you are not going to get away from where I am. And in Christ, you are not going to go anywhere that my spirit is not. And in Christ, my hand is going to hold you. And when you try to flee from me, my hand is going to keep you. And when you try to put on more layers, my right hand will uphold you in Christ Jesus. And does he want us to change? Absolutely. Does he want us to see the wickedness of our hearts and repent and let him redeem it? Of course. 
Does he want us to have better emotional health and more emotional maturity because we see the wrong stuff that we love more than him? Yes, duh, that's the gospel, that's Jesus. But here's the good news for us. He knows all of it and then some, and he says, you in Christ will not depart from my presence. Because if you are in Christ, God does not see you in Mark 7. If you're in Christ, God does not declare over you, oh yeah, that's that wicked kid, I guess, come on. In Christ Jesus, who took our sin on the cross, died the death we deserved, and yet rose again, we are now declared righteous. And God washes us whiter than snow and declares us holy in his sight. So there's freedom to go in, to go forward. There's so much freedom to be honest with ourselves and with God and with others. God, you won't let me go, so here I am. Change my heart. Here I am, change what I love more than you. Here I am, help me to see what is actually underneath the layers. Peel it all back. The heart, the worries, the ways, lead me in the way everlasting because of the beauty and the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. And every time we gather together, we get to remember that sacrifice. We get to remember the good news of the gospel. So you got a, a little communion cup there. It should be on your seat. Look around the rows. It's our practice every Sunday to, to take communion. And this is a, something that Christians have done for thousands of years, spread out across continents, to remember together the body and blood of Jesus, his sacrifice that through the cross, through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, all who trust in him will never depart from the presence of God. And he has washed us clean, and he is making us new, and he has declared us righteous in his sight. So we're going to take communion together as a family. If, if you're not uh, a Christian, this is one of the only things we'd ask you not to participate in, not because we don't like you or want to withhold from you, because you'd be saying that this is true about you, that the, this is for you and it's just not yet. But rather than take communion, I invite you to take Christ, to believe that God sees all of your ugliness, all of your wickedness, all the things you don't want to see or admit yourself, and he sent Jesus to die for all of it, to forgive you, to wash you clean, to make you new through trusting in him. I'll be down front. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus after the gathering. But for all who are in Christ, let's take the wafer, this little piece of cracker, which represents the body of Jesus, given on our behalf. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. Whenever you eat from this bread, you're remembering the Lord's death until he returns. Church, we get to take this bread knowing that it was the body of Christ given on the cross on our behalf that washes us clean, makes us new, and helps us. It's the only way to enter into God's presence. So church, take and eat. In the same way, he took a cup of wine after supper, and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed by the shedding of my blood. This juice, this little... One ounce thing of juice represents the blood of Jesus, our only hope, our only hope to be made right with God, our only hope to be washed clean, the blood that washes us whiter than snow for all who trust in Jesus, that we can be in the presence of God forever. So church, take and drink. Band's going to come back up. We're going to respond in a couple different ways. We got some prayer volunteers in the back. We'd love to pray with you and for you. We're going to worship together. Let me pray. God, Thank you so much for Psalm 139. Man, what a, a beautiful, beautiful invitation from David to, to declare and ask you, Lord, search me, know my heart. God, try me and know my anxious thoughts. 
see, look at my life. Is there any grievous way in me? But don't leave me there. Lead me in the way everlasting. God, so I pray this week as we go into our Mondays, as we head into our neighborhoods and our jobs and our communities and our friendships and our errands and the day in and day out of life, God, I pray that you would help us first see the false self. God, see the ways that we're trying to live in a lie and live in unreality, ways that we're lying to you, ways that we're lying to ourselves, ways that we're lying to other people about the true reality of our hearts, God, but rather in Christ Jesus. God, I pray that the prayer of Psalm 139, 23, and 24 will be the prayer of our hearts this week. God, at 10 a.m. on Wednesday, we would remember, Lord, search me and know my heart. I don't want to hide from you. When we yell at our spouse, God, search me and know my heart. I don't want to hide from you. When that friend asks us how we're doing and we want to lie and deceive, Lord, search me and know my heart. I don't want to hide from you. When we're alone in the car and we've got all those thoughts we'd rather not have, Lord, search me and know my heart. I don't want to hide from you. And we need to go in to go forward. We need to be honest with you, with ourselves, with others. God, we're, we're desperate for you to help us be honest. And thank you for the beautiful promise of the gospel. God, may we know with confidence, as David declares, where can we go from your spirit? Where can we hide from your presence? There's no east, there's no west, there's no north, there's no south, there's no darkness. We are not held by you in Christ Jesus. God, I pray that you would root us in that reality. That would be the deepest truth of our souls, that we cannot, in Christ Jesus, flee from you. You won't let us. You hold us and you keep us. We're desperate for you. We love you. We need you. For all these things in Christ's name, amen.